Good morning. And let's, let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love and the mercy that you've shown us. We thank you for Jesus. We're thankful for the truths you revealed to our minds. We're thankful for the opportunity to share this message with more and more people to change hearts and minds and lives, to live in harmony with you and your kingdom. We pray that this time in history you will pour out your spirit upon all receptive hearts to transform, heal, and, and to enable us to be more effective. Watch over uh, those here in the room and all of our friends and followers who are watching online and impact their hearts and minds for your kingdom, and may you guide as we continue to work to produce materials and and opportunities to share this message with others. We pray in your holy name. Amen. I am teaching, obviously, class today. This next week, I will be in Dallas uh, doing a, an intensive with Kurt Thompson. If any of you know Kurt Thompson, he wrote a couple of, of well-renowned books. Uh, the Soul of Shame is one of them. And we will be doing an intensive together. And then the following weekend, I will be in Lynchburg to start up my new responsibilities there. I will not teach this class again until we're in our new building. And when we're in our new building, I will be here to teach it in person the first weekend, and then I'll be teaching Zoom live. You'll be able to interact with me if you're in the room. If you're online watching, you'll just get the stream like you've always gotten, but if you're in the room in our new studio, you'll be able to interact with me like you do here. Uh, the reason I won't teach is because we can't do the Zoom live until we're in the new facility. We are doing lesson number 12 in the quarterly in the crucible of Christ, and the title is Dying Like a Seed. And the memory text is John 12, and we're going to read John 12, 23 to 26 from the NIV. And it reads, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for, it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I, follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. What does it mean when Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified? Was he referring to might? Power, pomp, signs, wonders. He was referring to character and in a specific event, wasn't he? Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, what's he referring to? His death and resurrection when he went back to heaven. He's referring to the time has the time has come for him to be glorified. He's referring to his crucifixion. But wait a minute. He got railroaded perjured against, abused, beaten, crucified, died, buried. How is that glorifying him? Let's glorify somebody. Let's go abuse them. He finished the work that his father sent him to do, and he was glorified when he went back to heaven, and the angels and all were so happy to see him. He was glorified, yes. So you said character. He revealed his character. And, and so, so you're suggesting God's glory is his character. character, and his character is love. Okay, why did God's glorious character of love need to be revealed in this way? To dispute the lies that Satan was. Okay, because his character wasn't fully understood in this way. It had been misrepresented. 
Satan's primary war efforts are lies about God, and those lies have caused confusion throughout the universe, leading some angels and humans into rebellion and questioning God's trustworthiness. So how does the crucifixion then, how is that a means to glorify God and settle the question? How much power did Jesus have at his disposal? Oh, <laughs> Unlimited. In John 13, he tells you all power had been given to him. All power. All, all power. Okay. And what did he do with it? At crucifixion weekend, all power is available to him. What is revealed about the one wielding power? He has power to wield. That he loved man so much, he was willing to give it all up to man. He restrained his use of power. Get your mind around that. Imagine you're in that circumstance. You're being lied about. You're being mocked. You're being laughed at. You're being beaten. You're being stripped naked. You're being crowned with thorns in your head, being punched in the face. You're being mocked, worshipped. You're being beaten with whips and cords, and you're being nailed to a cross. And uh, imagine, do you think there could be a temptation if you could just blink your eyes and make them disappear? Or even think it. Or just think the thought, be gone. Do you think you could be tempted to use power in ways that would put a stop to the pain and suffering, make them suffer? Uh, uh, not kill them. Of course, you wouldn't want to kill them. But wouldn't you at least have some roots grow up out of the ground to restrain them and hold them back? <laughs> Understand, he had all power. What he did with the power is he restrained his use of it. Which means he left sinful humans and demons who were on the grounds, free to abuse and kill him. See, the question in heaven was never, 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 never did Lucifer stand up and say, you know what I discovered? I actually have more power than God. I'm more powerful. He never said it. It was ludicrous. It was never a question of who was most powerful. The question was, can you trust him with the power? He'll abuse it. He'll hurt you if you, don't, if you don't do what he says. Oh, he pretends you have freedom. But in truth, he uses power to force his way. These were the subtle lies. At the cross, Jesus revealed that God in human form, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, all power given to him. He is the one safe with the power. Have you heard the old saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? Jesus proved that in his case, that is absolutely untrue. And thus, in Revelation, when you read the picture in heaven after his ascension, what are they saying about him? Worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He's proven. He's safe with the power. His, he was glorified. He submitted to the injustice, to abuse, to death, and in doing so, he destroyed the lies of Satan about God. 
and destroyed the infection, simultaneously destroyed within the humanity that he took upon himself, the infection of fear and selfishness that tempt us. Remember in Gethsemane, he's agonizing with human emotions. He's feeling the weight, the pull. But every time the emotions come, Father, let this cup pass from me. Uh, I'm agonizing to the point of death, his head tells his disciples. He feels the horrible emotions that we feel. But every time they come, what does he say? Not my will, thy will be done. He chooses love, and he rejects the temptations of selfishness. He rejects them. Thus, he crucifies them and rises in a new humanity that he perfected. Notice what Jesus says is in the same conversation about his being glorified by his refusal to use power to protect himself, but instead accomplishes his goal by surrendering himself in love to protect the freedom of his creatures, even protecting the freedom of his abusers. Notice what he says. This is in John twelve twenty-seven to 33. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Jesus knew that that this was his mission, to confront and overcome the lies, but also to purify the species human by destroying that infection of of what we call the carnal nature, but but the the infection of fear and self-centeredness that tempt us to act selfishly. And he says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it, it had thundered. And others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. This now is, now listen to this. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now, the word men is supplied by the translators. It's actually not in the Bible written by John in Greek. It actually says, Jesus actually said, I will draw all unto myself. Not all men, all He has something much larger in mind than just human beings. And you get this in other places in Scripture, like Colossians 1.20, when it says, all things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross through the shedding of his blood. The angelic beings in heaven had questions. They knew Lucifer personally for who knows how many millennia. He told lies that were subtle. They couldn't read hearts and minds. They stayed loyal, but questions remained. The history of human of the human race wasn't always clear in, in exactly why the events were happening the way they were happening. It, it, is, is Satan right? God has power, and if you don't what he says, he, he abuses you and kills you in a flood or sends fire from heaven to destroy your cities? Sodom and Gomorrah? Sends an earthquake to swallow you up. Uh, He's just an abuser of power. Is that what's happening? Lots of questions were circling. At the cross, though, Jesus revealed that he would not use power selfishly. And there must be another reason for the events in the Old Testament. It was not the infliction of punishment for sin. It was keeping open the avenue, keeping the promise of Genesis 3.15, Messiah's coming. The lies of Satan were refuted at the cross. God and Jesus were revealed to be trustworthy, and all sympathy for Satan was lost. He was, judgment happened. 
Not a judicial process. This judgment wasn't judicial. It was truth was revealed. The onlooking universe had their questions answered. They made a judgment. Lucifer's a liar. God is trustworthy. Judgment happened. And from that moment forward, all sympathy was lost in the unfallen beings for, for Lucifer. He couldn't taunt them like you read in the book of Job or tempt them anymore. They wouldn't listen. They were settled. They were, Satan was cast out into the open, cast out of their heart, cast out of their affections. When we think of God's glory, do we consistently think of his character of love? Yes? When you think of his glory? Or do you think of fire? Power. When we think of the three angels' messages, and it calls us to fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. Do, do we think about loving others? We give him glory, we're thinking, well, that's his character of love. So if we're going to glorify him, we must love others. Is that what we think? Or do we present a God, when we present the three angels' messages, that is a rule maker, and we tell people that our rule maker, God, has precise rules, and if you don't keep his rules, then he is required to sit in judgment over you and find you guilty as a rule breaker and use his power to punish you as a rule breaker. Is this the message we tell the world about God? Are we bringing him glory if we do that? Jesus replied, this is John 12, 23 to 26 again. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We just talked about the glorified. Now look at the rest of it. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it. The man who hates his life in this world uh, will keep it for eternal life. What are the lessons of a kernel falling into the ground and dying, a kernel of wheat? For, they're multiple. First lesson, it's about Jesus himself. He connected it to his mission to be lifted up and die. And it's an object lesson of Jesus being buried in death, coming forth in new life in a perfected humanity, the second Adam, the second head of the human species, who provides remedy to the sin problem for all who have faith or trust in him. Thus, he brings forth much fruit of saved souls. So the first application is in his own mission, what he needed to accomplish. Second lesson applies to us. Individually. We are to die to sin, to selfishness, to the old carnal nature, and rise again, being buried in baptism, and rise again with a new heart and a right spirit, living a new life with new motives that come from Christ through faith. So the object lesson applies to us individually. Let's explore this concept a little further. Was the death of Jesus an event, the death of Jesus on the cross, was it an event that brought an end to life or an event that brought an end to death and the death-causing principles and opened a way to eternal life. I'm going to say that again. Was the death of Christ on the cross an event that brought death? There was an event that brought death to death and the death-causing principle opening the way to eternal life. Well, let's look at... Uh, 
2 Timothy 1, 8 to 10. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Notice, join me in suffering. This is self-sacrifice. This is the principle of love. This is dying to selfishness, giving of self for advancement of a greater cause. This is the principle of love being lived out. By the, um, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace saved us. Saved us from what? He has saved us, it says right here, who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Saved us from himself. Saved us from what he'll do to us if we don't let him save us. This is what's taught. You saw the, the cartoon. Jesus standing at the door, knocking at the heart, at the door, and he says, let me in. For what? So I can save you. From what? From what I'll do to you if you don't let me in. <laughs> do you understand that's most of Christianity? You let Jesus in, but if you don't, then he'll, uh, so he can save you. Well, what's he saving you from? For what he'll do to you if you don't let him in. He's, he's required to kill you, torture you. This is all corrupt. No. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the punishment of God for sin. Is that what John said? That's what the Scripture says. Hope, don't, don't listen to me saying that as if it's true. That's a lie. What did John the Baptist say? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came to take away the sin problem, the sin condition, the cause of death, the death principle. He came to take it away. This grace, listen to this now, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. That's not me, that's Paul. Let that circle. (laughs) This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Which came first, time or people? Where God doesn't live in. Which came first, though, time or people? What happened on day four of creation week? And the sun, moon, and stars were created to measure days, days and time. And, and so the time was already there. Then the measuring devices were put in. But the time was already there. What came first? Time or angels? Angels. Time. Time. They don't live in time, sweetie. Of course they do. Angels are linear beings. They do not live in infinite existence. They live in linear existence. One event follows another event for angels. What are they eternal to? Don't they have eternal life? So when we have eternal life, does time cease? Are we still living from one moment and moving it? We're moving through time. Will there be one Sabbath to another that all, 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 all the creation comes and worships God according to Isaiah 66, is it? So we won't live a day for a year like the scriptures? But is that a day for a year? Is that time? How do you, what do you understand time to mean? Time is moving through events where one event follows another event. It's a process of, of what's happening now did not happen 30 seconds ago. We live in time. We flow through time. Time, time existed before intelligent beings other than God. He lives outside of time. He created time. He controls time. He governs time. But he's not constrained by time. So the point being is, the grace was given us in Christ before the beginning of time. That means, as I understand it, before God actually began to create. 
Even angels. Even angels. They had a beginning. They had a beginning, that's right. Those may not have an end, but they did have a beginning. Grace is not something new. It is, an, it is found in the character of God and is part of the eternal good news that we in the three angels' messenger take to the world. The eternal good news, the good news that has always been true through all eternity past and will always be true through all eternity future, which is the good news about God. God's character is love. And God, in his foreknowledge living outside of time, looked down through time, because to God, past, present, and future are like outspread. And God knew what was going to happen, and God, in his character of love and grace, this grace was committed to our salvation before he even began creation. He was in Christ already there. But now, continuing on with this. Before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed. It was there before the beginning of time. But now it has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus' death wasn't the death that ends life. It was the death that ends the cause of death. That destroys sin. That destroys rebellion. That destroys Satan and Satan's power of death, Hebrews 2.14. He took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him, holds the power of death, it is the devil, Hebrews 2.14. And fully restores God's living law of love into the species human, which he perfectly restored to unity with God. In Jesus Christ, humanity, we have a human being who lived perfectly the law of God and reconciled the species to unity with God and he sits at the right hand of God, a human being. When we think about the seed falling to the dirt, into the dirt and the ground and dying, that seed, as you throw it into the ground and plant it, still has the life-causing principle in it. Yes or no? But it dies to what it was so that it can live to a larger purpose in God's design. Jesus died as our Savior in order to destroy the infection of sin, but he still had the life-causing principle in him. Yes? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteous of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Jesus died to destroy sin, Satan, death, Satan's power, and Satan's work, and restore God's law and character back into the living temple the human being where God designed for it to reside in Eden. He put it back, a living law that operates in harmony with God and is the protocol upon which life is built. We just read 2 Timothy 1.10 about destroying death, and I, I quoted Hebrews 2.14 where he destroys Satan and Satan's power. And then 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Notice he destroys death. He destroys Satan. He destroys Satan's power. He destroys Satan's work. And what is Satan's work? What has Satan worked to accomplish? There you go. Exactly correct. Satan's labor or work is to efface the image of God in human beings and to put Satan's image where God should be. As we approach the end of time, you will see an ever-increasing marked contrast in people. 
people who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit will grow more and more into Christ-likeness. If you value what Ellen White wrote, she actually said right before the appearing of Christ, they will actually begin to radiate light like Stephen did before he was stoned or like um, Elijah and Moses did on the Mount of Transfiguration or Moses did coming off the mountain. Because they're so indwelled with the Spirit, the loving energy of God radiates from them. They become more and more like Christ. Whereas Satan is working to efface the image of God and create a species that the Bible refers to in Revelation. Instead of, we are a temple where God dwells by his Spirit. Revelation refers to these people as the synagogue of Satan. They become the synagogue of Satan. I see it in the world. Just look at the debasement, the corruption, the perversity, the, 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 the villainy. And notice that some of the worst villainy are not the people with, ha- with having tattoos all over their face. That is not the villainy. The worst villainy are the people who stand there proclaiming to be angels of light claiming that they're here to save lives. Make the nation better. Protect the innocent. But what they do is a violation of God's laws and designs and are corrupting to the character. And it's fear-driven, not love-driven. I could go on all day. i give you lots of examples. We have to go on because I have a bunch of fun stuff in the lesson. When we are united through faith in Jesus, his life, his love, his victory is reproduced in us with indwelling spirit, and the infection of fear and selfishness is displaced as the motivating drive in our heart. We have new motives, new desires, and we live new lives. This is dying to self and being reborn with a new character, new heart through God's grace. So there's another lesson from the seed dying in the ground, and that's the lesson, lesson of the first resurrection. Or the res- excuse me, the resurrection from death. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. So there's this lesson that this, and I can tell you, the older you get, the more you're looking forward to the hardware upgrade. The more you're looking forward for this mortal to put on immortality and the corruption to put on incorruption. Isn't it true? Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Those are Jesus' words. Do you believe this? Then this dying that Jesus talked about here is not the cessation of life. It is something else. It is a pause, a sleep, a state of suspended animation, a timeout, an interruption of active living, but it is not the cessation of existence. It is not annihilation that Jesus is speaking of here. This is not the death that he's speaking about here, is not the death that is the result of unremedied sin in the life of a sinner. That's not what he's talking about. The Bible refers to two deaths. First death, which is described as a sleep, just like your computer when it runs out of power, goes into sleep mode. It is not destroyed. It's sitting there, nothing's happening, waiting to be repowered, and it comes back on in the same place it ran out of power. And that is what's described in Scripture for the, for the saints, for the, for the righteous, actually the wicked too. That first death experience is they 
go to sleep, and they wake up with the same current of thoughts they went to sleep with. Continuing on. Understand this first death experience, this sleep death is what Jesus described. Lazarus, his friend, is asleep. I need to go wake him up. This first death experience is a grace and a mercy of God. And it is an artificial state of pause or timeout permitted by God for the plan of salvation to be carried out. But the Bible refers to a second death, a death that comes after the thousand years, after the great white throne judgment, a death from which there is no resurrection, a death in which individuality is destroyed, a death of annihilation. This death is from sin, and it's the actual ceasing of existence. Now the question, what causes the death that is the wages of sin, the annihilation and ceasing of existence? Does that death come from sin? Is it caused by sin? Or is that death caused by God as punishment for sin? If God were to do nothing, if God were to exercise no power, take no action, but merely allow events and circumstances to operate in their natural way in harmony with his own nature, his own character, and his laws that govern all of the universe as he created it to operate, if, if God simply allows that to move forward, would the wicked live eternally or would they die from their sin? I recently had a conversation with a very intelligent and sincere Christian gentleman who takes the position that God, for justice' sake, is the cause of the death of the wicked. He suggests that God takes an action that causes their death, and the action this gentleman suggests God takes is that God reveals his unveiled glory And in taking the action to reveal his unveiled glory, that causes the death of the wicked, and therefore God is responsible for justice and execution upon the wicked. How would you answer that? Do we believe that, in fact, it is God's unveiled glory that does bring about the final end? So how would you answer? This is a common one. You'll get it. You need to be prepared. I've had several people ask me, Say that to you. How did I respond? How do you respond? Okay. What law lens are you looking through? That's the question. Always the question. This is a subtle. And who's the, who's the source of the subtlety? Yeah. This is a subtle misinterpretation of facts and reality that comes from processing through imposed law views and ideas that God's laws are like human laws and God is sovereign must make things happen the way he wants them. Thus, God takes the action, reveals his glory, inflicts the punishment, and they cease to exist. But the facts are being interpreted backward. Backward. Understand now. Put it in the context of reality. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned in Eden, God, in mercy, began taking an action. Right then, he began acting. What did he do? He began using power. He began intervening. He began interceding in ways that are artificial 
and not natural to the universe as he created it in order to stop sin and to save his children. That's why he began making these artificial actions. And what action did God take right there in Eden that was artificial? Created, you might say, created an artificial bubble or put human species on artificial life support. You could use it that terminology. It's all the same thing. But he took an action that was not natural to his universe to prevent sin from destroying his creatures, to allow for the plan of salvation to be worked. And what action did God take? He did do that. There you go. He veiled himself. That's what he did. He hid his life-giving glory. He cut the earth apart from the full, fiery, glorious presence, and immediately Adam and Eve discovered something about themselves. Immediately they discovered what? They were naked. My goodness, they didn't know that before. What was the deal? In perfect unity with God, Beings are covered in robes of light. Moses coming off the mountain, his face is starting. But at the Mount of Transfiguration, we see Elijah and Moses standing there. What are they covered in? The natural state of God's universe is for his intelligent beings to be bathed, covered in his fiery, glorious presence because we are conduits of his life-giving energy. It flows out and radiates from us. But as soon as Adam sinned, sin would destroy them. So God took an action that is not natural to his universe. He hid himself. And this world became a dark place. A place cut off from the full, unveiled glory of God. And how could the disciples at the transfiguration look upon Elijah and Moses if they were covered with God's glory? They weren't seeing the fullness of it. They were actually shied down. They couldn't hardly look at it themselves, if you remember. It was still veiled to a portion. It wasn't the full. Remember when they came to arrest Jesus, a little flash of it came through, and they fell down as dead men. Just a little flash. So after Adam sinned, God in mercy withdrew his full presence. His sustaining power didn't flow over the planet any longer in its fullest sense, and nature began to decay. Mutations entered. Things began to wither and die, including, including human beings. Aging and the sleep death are not inflicted punishments by God. They are a result of God's grace working, of God veiling his presence to allow the plan of salvation to be carried forth. Remember when Moses asked to see God? God said to him in Exodus 33.20, no one can see my face and live. Because if I catch anybody peeking, I'll have to kill you. That's not what he meant, is it? No. And in fact, what does uh, John say in First John? That when Jesus comes, we will see him as he is, for we shall be like him. We cannot see his face in our current state because we're so out of harmony with his perfection. But when he heals us, we will see him in that state. So again, God's mercy veils to allow the plan of salvation. So what, the, what does the Bible teach is the cause of eternal death? Is God the source of death? 
Does death come from God or is God the source of life? And sin severs our connection with the source of life and sin is the cause of death. So for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, Romans 6.23. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death, James 1.15. The one who sows to the please the sinful nature, from that nature reaps destruction, Galatians 6.8. Is this terminology, though, of dying that doesn't actually result in death, but actually brings life confusing? To talk about dying so you can live, and those that live won't die. <laughs> and those that die to self will live. Does that sound confusing and contradictory? I use this concept a lot in marriage counseling when dealing with toxic marital situations in which certain practices are employed that are damaging to both parties, yet both parties say they want to save the marriage, but they don't want to go on like this because they're miserable. What are they saying they actually want? They want the old ways of relating to die. They want the marriage as it functions currently to die. And they want a new marriage with new ways of relating. They want the old gone. They want new motives, practices, principles to bring forth fruits of joy, love, kindness, health, and wellness. That's what they want. They want to kill it so they can have a new one. Does that make sense? Do you see that? That's exactly what the gospel's teaching. But the only way they can have a new relationship, healthy relationships require healthy people. The only way for them to have that new relationship, for them individually to die to the methods that are toxic in the way they treat each other and to rise in newness of Christ and to treat each other as, as Christ treats us. Then they can have that new life and that new relationship. So this language, now that makes sense to you, right? Yes, that's what the Bible is teaching. Sunday's lesson, now this is, we're going to get some fun stuff now. I've got four more days we're going to get through, so we're going to, we may go over. <laughs> Sunday's lesson uh, says, Contemporary culture urges us all to demand and assert our rights. And all this is good and often is the way it should be. But as with Jesus, the will of God may be for us to give up our rights freely in order to serve the Father in ways that will make an eternal impact on God's kingdom. Is this correct? I heard a no. Depends on your law view. Brilliant. Yes. The first question to ask is, what law lens are you looking, looking through? Do we, are we to give up our rights or are we to protect and advance our rights? Do we have inalienable rights that we should never surrender under any circumstances? Did Jesus surrender his rights? The lesson points out, Philippians 2, 5 through 7, in which Jesus did not think equality with God was something to grasp, but humbled himself into the form of humanity all the way to the cross. Well, there's no question that Jesus sacrificed himself and surrendered his original position in heaven in order to take a lowly position on earth and die as our Savior. No question about that. But in doing so, did Jesus surrender his rights? It, again, depends on the law lens. If we use the human law lens, then Jesus gave up his rights. If we use God's design law, though, your mind's going to explode <laughs> because something awesome and beautiful happens. So let me ask you some questions. Let's walk through this about the question of rights. Did Jesus have the right to save humanity after Adam's sin? Did Jesus give up that right to save humanity or did he exercise that right? 
<laughs> Who is the rightful ruler of planet Earth, Adam or Jesus? Did Adam rule Earth as the creator and owner of the Earth, or did Adam rule Earth as a subordinate to God under the authority of Jesus? So when Adam sinned and Satan claimed Adam's position as ruler of Earth, did Jesus surrender his right to Satan, ceding the Earth to Satan's authority? Did he do it? Or did Jesus retain his right as the rightful ruler? Yes. And came in order to destroy Satan's power and overthrow his rule in the hearts and minds of men and redeem earth from Satan's clutches. He exercised his right. He didn't surrender it. When Jesus was on earth 2,000 years ago, did he surrender his right to heal, to save, to forgive sins, to set captives free? Did he surrender that right or did he exercise it? Yes. Did he surrender his right to teach and reveal the truth about his father to the religious authorities and theology professors? <laughs> did he do that? Or did he retain his right to teach the truth? Did Jesus surrender his right to life? Yeah, I hear a yes. There's at least one yes. Or did Jesus say that he was laying down his life only to pick it up again? John 10, 17. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority, the right, to lay it down. I have authority, the right, to take it up again. This command I received from my father. This command? This command? I was command. I was directed. I was ordered. I was on mission. Uh, uh, the sovereign has sent me for a purpose. And this command was to go take up humanity, surrender my life to destroy the death-causing principle, but then take it back up to restore life. Did Jesus surrender his right to life, or did he claim his right to destroy the death-causing principle and bring life? It's great. It's exciting stuff. Did Jesus surrender his rights or retain them and exercise them? Did Jesus surrender his freedom or retain his freedom? What do you think? Surrender or retain? Well, when Peter cut off the high priest's ear, Jesus said, quote, Put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Do you not think I can call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Did Jesus go through this because he surrendered his freedom? Or did he go through it freely choosing to accomplish the mission and purpose to destroy the death-causing principle and bring life? Did Jesus surrender his right to joy? Or did he retain his right? Hebrews 12, 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So let me ask you, did Jesus surrender his right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? He did not. Jesus retained and exercised these rights, but did so only in harmony with reality, with the kingdom of God, with the design laws upon which God constructed reality to work, truth, love, and freedom. The argument of the lesson is about giving up, about giving up our rights applies only when we view our rights through human law. Because? Why? Why is that true? Because? When we view law, when we view our rights through human law, we, if that's our view, then we surrender them because human law is about imposing our will on others 
and forcing others to submit to our way. That's what human law is about. It is imperial. It is demanding that others acknowledge us and treat us the way we insist is our right to be treated. That's the human way. But the kingdom of God, Jesus said, is within you. And when we exercise the authority God has given us, which is authority over ourselves, to live out his methods and principles, we never seek to force the hearts, minds, and conscience of others, but we also never surrender ours to the ungodly, only to Jesus. Satan is a liar and he deceives by getting people to replace the laws of God for the methods and laws of humanity and then to seek to advance their rights through imperial methods of legislation, force, coercion upon others, rather than advancing our rights through living out the truth, the love, and the methods of God and how we treat others. Does that make sense? Let that meditate on that day, because this is the final end, guys. I'm just going to tell you, what I just said is the final war issue. The final war issue is what method, what law are you going to choose to put into your heart and apply in how you treat other people? As you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Are you going to live out the principles of truth, love, and freedom in treating others, including these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death, Revelation 12, 11, meaning that you will be like Stephen, allowing others to abuse you if it comes to it. Or will you use the methods of the world and advance a philosophy that says because they're wrong, it's right to use power to force them in line? That's the beastly system. The beastly system is not coming, again, I've said this over and over, to set up Satan worship cult centers. It's not going to happen like that. It's going to come to do justice. It's going to come claiming to make life better. It's going to come to save lives. It's going to come to do what is right in the eyes of the world through imperial methodologies, coercion and force. And it will come with, with gentle words. It'll initially start up with simply compassion and wanting to save life. Uh, but then the people who won't comply, we pointed out as the cause of the problem. And, 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 and then the savior who is leading this will love us so much that, that he'll just want to discipline us a little bit. So at first you won't be able to buy or sell, save you accept his mark. And be like him. He doesn't want to hurt you. He just wants to discipline you enough that you'll surrender to him and follow him. But if you don't, then, of course, you'll be in prison and you'll lose your freedom. And if still you won't, then, of course, death has to be inflicted because justice requires that God kill the wicked. That's what, that's what, we just, that's what the world teaches. Sin requires God to kill. But he doesn't do it out of vengeance. He does it out of love. That's what love does. I can't tell you how many pastors I have heard taught this lie. Love requires God to kill the wicked. It's the way justice works. Prepare for it. It's coming. It's beastly. Monday's lesson, Romans 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able, then, notice, notice this, this will blow your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The lesson states it's only the renewed mind that can truly understand God's will. Can you think of any ways in which a renewed mind thinks differently than an unrenewed mind? Well, I just gave you an example. How we view law, how we view justice, 
how we view, how we treat each other. But what do you think of this idea that with a renewed mind, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is? Aren't we? Are, are we to test and approve God's will? Aren't we merely to surrender and submit to the will of God? Uh, if we are to test and approve God's will, what does that mean? Aren't we to simply, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Ours is not to reason why, ours is just to do and die. What are the differences between a renewed and unrenewed mind? Is it the renewed mind actually seeks to understand God, where the unrenewed mind seeks simply to obey God? The renewed mind seeks to understand God. The unrenewed mind seeks to obey God. Does the renewed mind seek an enlightened and intelligent faith, while the unrenewed mind seeks a blind faith? Does the renewed mind seek to understand God's methods and principles intelligently and live in harmony with them, while the unrenewed mind seeks to determine the right rules and the authorized way to keep them? Does the renewed mind seek to see God face to face because we will be like him, where the unrenewed mind seeks a mediator to stand between us to protect us from him? Does the renewed mind, with a jealousy for God's reputation, humbly ask questions and question God's revealed will? God has revealed his will and his plan, and the renewed mind questions him, where the unrenewed mind says, mine is not to question why the Lord said it. I believe it. That's all there is to it. So who had the renewed mind? Did, did Abraham have a renewed mind when he questioned God about Sodom? 50, 40, 30, not even 10, Lord. Certainly the Lord of all the earth should do what is right. Did, did he have a renewed mind or an unrenewed mind? What about Moses when, when Moses questioned God about destroying Israel and starting out a new nation with Moses' children? Did, was Moses' mind renewed when he questioned God? Would God prefer people when he revealed his plan to Abraham, his plan to Moses, would God prefer people simply say, okay, Lord, who am I to question? You said it. Please go do it. What about John fifteen fifteen? Jesus said, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I have learned from my father I have made known to you. What's the attitude of a servant to its master? To his master. The master said it. We don't question. Very good, sir. Very good, sir. As you say, sir. Whatever you say, sir. Happy to do it, sir. No questions for me, sir. There's a TV program. Have you seen, everybody seen this program called uh, Downton Abbey? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> do, do the servants that, uh, that come upstairs to deal with the, uh, the aristocracy uh, question the aristocracy? Or is it typically, if the, they say it, even, uh, but then when they go downstairs and the aristocracy is doing something, what are they, amongst themselves, what do they say? <laughs> How stupid is that? But hey, does God want from us more than the obedience of a well-trained dog? What does God want? He wants our friendship, our loyalty, our love, our trust. The only way that's achieved is not by might nor by power, but by the spirit of truth and love, truth revealed, 
in love, leaving us free so that we are fully persuaded in our own minds and we come to agree. He has revealed how he works, his methods, and we go, that is the best way. That is the only way. That's the way I love too. Thank you. And we test and approve. We approve. Those are the ways. Those are the right ways. Those are the righteous ways. No one is above the creator God. He is awesome. And we have been fully persuaded in our own mind. Wednesday's lesson. We're flying now, aren't we, guys? Now listen to this. With all that in mind, listen to this. First paragraph. When Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, it wasn't simply because she doubted God's word. At the heart of the problem was her belief that she had enough wisdom to decide for herself what was good and right. She trusted her own judgment. When we rely on our own judgment as opposed to trusting God's word, we open ourselves up to all sorts of problems. Hmm, what is being suggested here? Pardon? Submitting without using our own mind. Yes, she says it's, it's suggesting that we simply submit and follow like a good servant. The master has said, who am I to question? Don't think about it. Don't understand why. Don't reason it through. Don't come to your own conclusion. Don't use your judgment. They're suggesting that Eve was to believe that she did not have the ability to think and comprehend. She actually was not made in the image of God. God has never said to us, come, let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, but white like snow. God has never said in Romans 14.5 that every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. God has never instructed in Hebrews 5.14 that the mature, those who develop by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. We aren't supposed to do that. We're simply supposed to find a rule. The rule said it. Who are we to question? It's horrible. In fact, it's an exact contradiction to reality. It's an exact contradiction to the, the story in Genesis. It's an exact contradiction to the purpose of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The purpose of the tree was for them to think. When the most mild thing at all they could do, they had a whole globe, a whole planet of anywhere they could go and access every tree, eat of anything they wanted in the garden and on the planet, there was only one tree that was set aside. That's it. Think about it. Just the world today. Think how many trees there are in the world. And there's only one tree in this whole planet you can't access. What a restrictive planet. What a restrictive God. We are cut off from so much. No, it was there for one purpose. What was the purpose? For Adam and Eve to evaluate what they personally knew. I mean, they walked with God daily in the cool of the day. They talked to him face to face. They experienced him in an intimate personal relationship. They were gifted all the things that we can't even imagine on this, how this planet was before sin. They had evidence before them of God's goodness, of creation. Uh, uh, you read in, in, uh, in various commenta- commentaries, uh, they, were, they studied nature. They saw how God built things to work and the interdependent principles of love working out in nature. And in amongst all that, a liar presents and begins to suggest God. Well, this is all just pretend. It's not really. It's fantasy. God really doesn't give you freedom. He's restrictive if you ask questions. And, and what was the purpose? For them to decide. To decide for themselves who they believed and who they trusted. What they would come to know. The tree of knowledge of good or evil. What would they choose to know? Remember, Adam knew his wife Eve. She conceived and gave a son. Life eternal, they might know you, the only true God. This is not cognitive awareness. This is what we know by experience. 
What would they internalize and know? Would they choose to know love and trust and loyalty and devotion and godliness and righteousness and holiness by choosing to reject the lies and be settled into the truth and recognize and discern? Would they choose to know the good by rejecting the lie? Or would they choose the lie and come to know guilt, shame, fear, selfishness? That's what they chose to know. It was the tree where they would know one or the other by their choice, and it's the only way, because God cannot, by divine power, create character. He can create sinless, intelligent beings, but character is developed by the choices of the beings. And so exactly the opposite of what the lesson is teaching here, she was exactly to use her own judgment, evaluate, and she had the ability in her pre-fall condition, and Adam did too, to exercise the power of choice to develop a sinless, godly character in their own strength without the added assistance of an indwelling Holy Spirit. You understand that? Just as the angels in heaven had the ability in their perfection to decide for or against God and solidify themselves in their loyalty. We don't have that power. We require the indwelling Holy Spirit. So I was uh, particularly put off by that paragraph. It was diminishing. Pardon? Power at the end, where there's the verse that says, he that is righteous, be righteous still, he that is not righteous. No, the power for our victory is always through a dependent relationship. uh, So take my yoke upon you. A yoke, Jesus said, okay, is is not a bridle, and it's not a bit. A yoke is something that shares the burden. We take the yoke of love upon us, and it is uniting together with Christ through the working and indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we are able to be victorious. We will never be victorious in our own strength. Now, after glorification, the internal struggles are gone, and we are sealed and settled at that point. But as long as we're on this earth, we're only victorious as we're yoked up with Christ. And it's our choice Always our choice. God never chooses for us in any moment. But the power to succeed, the desire, the insight, the wisdom, the capacity to discern the right all that light is coming from God. We're choosing to accept it and say yes to it or reject it and say no to it. As we say yes to it, we receive divine power that transforms and enable us to apply it and live it. But that is only as we're united with him. Good question. And now we're going to close with this. The lesson focuses on King Saul, his downfall. And they suggest his downfall was a three-step process in which Saul saw his forces deserting and evaporating away from 3,000 down to 600, said to himself that the Philistines would win, they had over 30,000, and felt afraid and therefore compelled to make sacrifices. Let's read about it in 1 Samuel 13, 7 through 14. And I want you to tell me, what did King Saul do here that caused Samuel to tell him the kingdom is taken away from him and given to another? Listen to the description. Saul remained in Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter, desert. So he said, bring me a burnt offering, the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling in Michmash, 
I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I, compel, I, I felt compelled to offer burnt offerings. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, that Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now, do we find that in this description where he lost the kingdom, it was because he was visiting the witch of Endor and having a seance. What was he doing? He was reasoning. <laughs> he was reasoning, she said. Was he worshiping a false god? Was he bringing unauthorized? He offered a pig on the, on the, on the altar to the Lord. Was he bringing an unauthorized sacrifice? Uniting church and state. Understand what he did. Do you see it? Think about it. Let your mind wrestle with that. Doesn't it, or do you go, I don't get it. He, 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 they, they were, they were anxious, they were fearful, and he offers sacrifices to the Lord. Isn't that, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Is that what it sounds like to you? What he did as king is he made God look like Baal. Baal is a God who requires sacrifice in order to get favors. We're scared. We can't come to you in faith. Samuel said, you should have had faith. Didn't have faith. So we have to bribe you, God. We have to influence you. We have to do a sacrifice to get your goodwill. We're scared. People are going, uh, bring me offerings. We'll offer. God, please now give us your blessing. This is paganism. He practiced the sacrifice in a pagan way, misrepresenting God with a payment to influence God. He didn't trust God. When David was out there on the battlefield and the whole Israel army was frightened because of Goliath, did David actually say, let me uh, go offer a sacrifice to, to, to get the proper payment so the Lord will bless me? Or did David say, hey, send me. <laughs> I trust the Lord. He's going to deliver that Philistine into my hands. There's the difference. David actually trusted God. Saul trusted the payments he could make to God. How many Christians actually trust God versus the payment that they can make of Jesus' blood to God? Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much that in Jesus, you have revealed yourself fully. May we come to embrace the truth as you have revealed it to us. And may the Holy Spirit be poured out to take the victory of Christ, that we can, like a seed, die to that old, sick, sinful way, but come to life and bring forth peaceable fruits of righteousness for your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen.